So I want to start off this sermon with a question for you. What do you think is the main goal and intention of Moses and ultimately God in creating this book of Genesis? What do you think is the main goal and purpose? Some, some people might argue that Genesis's main purpose is to uh, fight against evolutionary theory. Or other people might say that Genesis is written to ensure that, uh, that we know a certain morality. But what do you say? I'll put the question in a different form here. What do you think the main intention for Moses writing Genesis for the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. The Israelites who have been enslaved to Egypt for 400 years, and now they're set free from that slavery, but they're wandering around, and has God forgotten us? Well, no, clearly he hasn't because he's given us manna every day. And we have seen miracles from God. They've seen smoke from Mount Sinai. Why in the midst of this is the book of Genesis written? I think that the ultimate intention for the book of Genesis is to reintroduce Israel to God and to reveal God's plan to rescue people from their sinfulness and welcome them into his arms. Now, in saying that, that doesn't mean that Genesis doesn't speak about morality. That doesn't mean that Genesis doesn't speak on creation and other important types of things. But what's the point of Moses talking about these things? Is it just so that Israel can walk away and say, oh, we know the real creation narrative and you guys don't? Is it just so that the nation of Israel can be smarter and be more aware about certain things? Do you think that's God's intention for giving them the book of Genesis so that they can just have more theological acumen? No. In, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, when God says, in the beginning, God, God is saying to the Israelites and to all of us even here today, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you me. And as I say this, I want to ask you something else. If that's, if that's the ultimate intent of the book of Genesis, then how are you, how are you personally listening to and receiving the sermons in Genesis? Are, are you thinking of how the truths shared each Sunday are spoken to increase your awe of God and draw closer to him? Or are you just excited that you got more information to be passionate about? If it's the second, if it's the second reason, then you're coming every week pursuing idolatry. Because while there is fascinating information, all the information is meant to draw us to God. Do you want God or do you just want things about God? And I pray, I pray that you've continually been reintroduced to God every single week, that, that you've been in awe of him and that you are compelled to commune with God by faith 
And you might wonder why I say all of this today. Well, it's because we're going into a chapter in Genesis that many people kind of think doesn't have much of a main purpose to it. Uh, actually, one of the commentators I read said that this chapter is um, the most neglected chapter in all of Genesis. It's a chapter that is entirely genealogy. Chapter 10, you can go ahead in your Bibles to chapter 10 if you have your Bibles here. But I personally believe that this chapter follows the same intention as every single other chapter in Genesis. Some people, some people might not even grace chapter 10 with even a pit stop. We just think, Shem, Ham, Japheth, skip Babylon, Abraham. Boom. Who needs chapter 10? Well, God said God had chapter 10 written, and all scripture is profitable right? So chapter 10 is necessary, and it serves the same intention as the entire book, to reintroduce us to God. So I want to introduce you to God again this morning, and I'll give you the main idea of the message today. So I believe chapter 10 shows us that the Lord, who is sovereign over all, weaves his redemptive plan within the apparent chaos of the world. And if you read chapter 10, you might say right now, how in the world did you come up with this main idea? Well, that's what the rest of the sermon is, right? But let's just put that on hold for a second. And I want to ask you, do you feel like, or do you feel the chaos of this world? It's fine if you, you know, nod your head. Do you feel it? When you listen to the global news, does your heart ache? When you see what's going on in America, are you, are you ever at a loss for words because of the brokenness that you hear about in all different types of ways? And maybe you feel not just the brokenness of the world or America, but you feel the brokenness inside of you. Or maybe you feel it in your family. Or maybe you even feel it within this church family. You feel this chaos. And what do you do what do you do? How do you respond when you feel the chaos? A lot of people turn to methods to self-soothe. And maybe you can turn to just scrolling on media to self-soothe. Or you just pick up some more food to self-soothe and get your mind off of things. Turn to something just really fun. But you know what? Even if you do those types of things, the problems never go away, do they? All of a sudden, you get back to reality, and there's the chaos again. And Genesis consistently affirms the chaos of this world. Even, even before sin entered the world, we have the image of chaos. In Genesis 1, verse 2, remember, God says, in the beginning, God created. And then verse 2, there was darkness, there was void, and there's waters covering the face of this formless void. And that's representative of chaos. And yet, who's over the chaos? Who? God, the Lord, is over the chaos. And what does he do? But he brings this creation out of it. God is in control of the chaos. Or you get to Adam and Eve and their sin. And there's the chaos of sin that is entered in. Did God say, oh, no. I, I don't know what to do now. Did he do that? No. 
He was over the chaos of the sin in such a way to, to, not, only, to not only forgive them, but then to also promise the seed of the woman, the one who's going to come and crush the serpent so that people could be saved and forgiven. God is over the chaos of this world. Or then we even get to Noah, what we've just been studying about. And we read that before Noah goes off onto the dry land, we read about the spirit, or many translations say the wind, but the spirit went over the waters. And then Noah could then walk onto the earth. God moved the chaos. God is over the chaos of this world. We need that consistent reminder because we're a forgetful people. I think many times we can rehearse even God's faithfulness in the past, but we have a hard time believing it in the present. Can you relate to that with me? Like, oh yeah, God did this, God did that, God did this, woohoo, praise the Lord. And then you go through something, ah, where is God? Any of you ever felt that? And wait a second, isn't that exactly how the Israelites responded in the wilderness? Over and over, oh, yay, God did this. Oh no, God brought us out to the sea to kill us. What, what? We do the same thing. But we need to rehearse over and over God's faithfulness in the past in order to battle and to believe that he is faithful in the present. Now, I want you to imagine what things were like for Noah and his family. We saw last week that the world Noah entered was clearly still imperfect. It's just as fallen as it was before. And then Noah declares on God's behalf a curse to one of his sons and blessings to two of his children. Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but it's actually pretty important, I think, in the reading of Genesis. Um, how, how many sons are mentioned by name of Adam and Eve? How many? Three, right? And, uh, and then here in this text with Noah, we have three sons that are mentioned. And there is some similarity between what's going on here. You have Cain and Abel, and one is representative of the serpent who murders. And then you have the other one who has faith, but he dies, and the New Testament tells us that he looks forward to the faith of the serpent crusher. And then later on, you have Seth who shows up, and Seth is actually the one who continues the line to the serpent crusher. Here, the similarity with these three sons is you have, you have Ham, Shem, Japheth, and Ham is representative of the who? Who's uh, the serpent, right? And then you have Shem, who is seed of woman, and then you have Japheth, who experienced the blessing of the seed of the woman as he trusts in that one. You, you see, <laughs> if that was confusing or anything, I totally get it. Just get on YouTube, listen, re-listen, or send me an email. We'll talk about it later this week. Um, but these, there are these connections here that are guiding uh, the people to trust in God and trust in his promise of the serpent crusher to come. These sons, these three sons are representative of humanity. And what we even learned last week with Shem and Japheth, they lead to Jews and Gentiles. Uh, some of my kids ask, what's a Gentile? Non-Jew. How many non-Jews are in here? 
okay? Wow! Because of Jesus, you can be accepted into God's family. You are Japheth experiencing the blessings of Shem, okay? And so that's, that's what we learned about last week. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the urging is, is will you turn to God? Will you trust him? Will you stop your self-salvation, self-protective, self-centered efforts, self-soothing efforts, and savor and trust the glorious God? This is Moses' call to Israel. Will they trust the Lord as they wander? When they enter the promised land, will they trust the Lord and love him? And the question comes to us too. In the chaos of this broken, cursed world, will we trust and adore the Lord for who he is? For me personally, I can genuinely say that this past year has been the most difficult year of my life. And many of you know that I have dealt with seasons of depression, mental struggles, chronic physical pain, and I don't minimize any of those. Many of you know many of the things that I'm referring to when I say things about this past year. Some of you know all of them. This year has felt like chaos. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with my spiritual director. Some of you met him, Thad Barnum. And in our conversation, we were talking about the Lord, and I proceeded to say to him, I can't imagine what life would be like if I did not know and experience the Lord. If God was not giving me the grace to believe and to continue to believe, I'd be done. I'd be out. And yet, God has continued to stabilize and grow and increase my dependence on him through the pain, through the sorrows, and through joys as well. But I'm just saying this, like, this is not a trite statement. Knowing God changes everything. He gives grace upon grace and empowers to endure with hope. Because you know that God is good in his sovereignty. He is in control of everything, and he's good in that towards his children. See, this is the kind of confident hope that I believe that God is urging the Israelites towards. That Moses is writing to the Israelites, believe and be assured. I think this is even the desire in chapter 10 of Genesis. The Israelites need to know God. And looking at Canaan's descendants, they need to see how being like Canaan who also is similar to Cain. Being like them is a fool's errand. To give in to chaos is ruin, but to trust the Lord breeds hope in the serpent crusher to come. And Genesis 10 shows that even in the genealogy, God is worthy of our trust. So 
while we might be tempted to think genealogy is dry and boring, and while we might be tempted to drive by the pit stop of chapter 10, we can't do that. We see his glory here. The Lord, who is sovereign over all, weaves his redemptive plan within the apparent chaos of the world. And now we're going to break this statement down. The Lord, who is sovereign over the nations. If you have little headings in your Bible, you might see above chapter 10, nations descended from Noah. Just as a side note, that's not in original manuscripts. That's what people put in just to help readers to know what that section is about. But we go into chapter 10 and we read, these are the generations of the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Then in verse 2, we read about the sons of Japheth. In verse 6, we read about the sons of Ham. And in verse 21, the sons of Shem. Each section for each son of Noah concludes with something about how these families are divided by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So when you look at the list here, you find individual names, but you also find names that relate to nations and areas, okay? Now this makes this genealogy fascinating, and this genealogy is actually quite unique. I'll, I'll tell you at least three reasons why this is unique. First is in its type, the type of genealogy that's listed here. This genealogy is to be understood as a national genealogy. It's the genealogy of nations. It's not merely telling you who was born from whom, but it tells you how nations came to be and where the alliances came from between the nations. Okay? This leads into the second unique aspect. It's, it's different from other ancient genealogies. Actually, according to our studies up to this point in time, there is no other ancient genealogy from another nation that actually has a genealogy of nations. You know, you, you might be able to see in one nation, they'll mention other nations, but their focus is on them. And they're the highlight, and they are it, and they are everything. Isn't it really interesting that the genealogy of nations in Genesis doesn't even mention Israel because Israel doesn't even exist yet, right? And yet here it is, God has cursed Ham, and he has blessed Shem and Japheth, and then he's showing how this is all panning out. And God is over all of it, which is in contrast to other nations who believe their gods were over them. Their gods were over their little area and their part of land. But Yahweh is over all the nations. This is something that people would have gotten when they read this genealogy. And then there's uniqueness in numbering. This is, you like to geek out about this kind of stuff, you're going to be excited here, Okay. But, but hopefully not just excited for the information, but how the Lord is communicating himself, even through a boring genealogy. See, if you count the number of names here in this genealogy, you'll notice that they total to the number of 70. And that, that actually matters. Now, by the way, I don't believe that we should interpret all of the scriptures using numerology. But when the Bible emphasizes numbers, then we should understand the numbers that are written here. Later on, Abraham's descendants total 70. In the ancient world, seven and 10 were numbers that communicated wholeness and completeness. And when you actually put seven and 10 together, seven times 10 
to equal 70. That's like the wholeness of wholeness here. And so what's being communicated here is that God has told Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now they are going out and they are in the earth and, and they have gone about according to God's ordained plan. And so now God is over all of this. There's this sense of wholeness here, which means something's going to happen after this. But again, God is not simply sovereign over one nation or one little people group. God is over the individuals, the clans, the languages, the lands, and the nations. And we can extend that truth. We can extend that truth to us today. Do you believe that? If you're a follower of Jesus, Yahweh is your God, and he is still and always has been over all the nations. He's over the curse, and he will also see to it that his promised blessing will prosper. Do you believe that? The Lord is sovereign over the nations, and he's sovereign over the nations in the midst of apparent chaos. Now, where do I get chaos in this genealogy? Okay, so here's, here's some more interesting things about this genealogy. Um, let's remember again, in chapter 9, we have the curse of Canaan, the blessings to Shem and Japheth. Then we enter into chapter 10, we read about Japheth first, and the names are actually neatly ordered, neatly ordered numerically. If you add up the names, the names are divisible by, can you imagine what the number is? Seven. They're divisible by seven with Japheth. You go into Ham, you go into Shem, you go with Shem's names. Can you guess what the, you total the number of names, what number are they divisible by? Seven. Okay? And yet in between there's Ham. And can you guess what number it's divisible by? Not seven. You can't divide his by seven. Do you think that's important? You think that, that from, a, from a genealogical perspective in the ancient world, to be divisible by mattered. People would read it and count and say, what does this mean? Because when we look at genealogies, we're just saying, we just want to know who was born from whom. When they wrote genealogies, it was meant to teach something as well. And even the placement of the numbers meant something. So from an ancient reader's perspective, this is noticeable. It's not just a coincidence that Shem and Japheth's are ordered and Ham's is disordered. Ham's genealogy is communicating a curse on him. Japheth and Shem's are communicating the blessing that's going to come. And so what we see is in this world, there's a curse and then you add these names to Ham's list. Now, to the wandering Israelites, they would recognize these names. Maybe, maybe you recognize some of the names in the list. Egypt, you ever heard of that one? Babylon, Nineveh, Sheba. Now, I mentioned this last week as well, but many of Ham's descendants created nations that were glorious and to the Israelites who are wandering around, they would not look at these nations and think, oh, they're cursed, definitely cursed. They would look at them and say, what? Why do they get all the good stuff? Right? Even the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, well, at least we had food when we were slaves. Like, maybe we could go back. 
Because those nations look as though they're blessed. But God, even in this genealogy, is saying, not so. Their foundation is sand. They are the cursed ones. From the world's eye, maybe it looks like they're blessed, but they're under judgment. And we actually see the truth of judgment more clearly when we get to the explanation of one man's name in Ham's lineage. Now, previously, when we went through genealogy, I said when names have explanations to them, it matters. And in this genealogy, there's two names that have explanations. Uh, one is Nimrod, here in Ham's descendants, and then we have Peleg, who we'll talk about in just a little bit. Well, let's just talk about Nimrod. We're going to focus here, verses 8 through 12. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Syria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Who is Nimrod? And the text says he was a mighty man. What? What does that mean? That he was a mighty man. I mean, I, I, I have tended in the past to just, you know, again, bypass chapter 10 and be confused by it all and look at the statement, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Hmm. Sounds like a blessing. Sounds like something like, how many of you hunt? You can feel free to raise your hand. Hunting season coming up in the fall. And like if you got, let's say, a 12-point buck, you know, and you have this picture and, and you take the picture of it and then you put it on the wall and then underneath you inscribe, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because that's not what it means. All right? What, what actually, when you look at the Hebrew behind mighty hunter, this, this phrase actually refers to being a tyrant. And, and the stronger the tyrant, they, they were actually rated on how brutal they were and how great they were in their hunting. And so you could say that Nimrod was a mighty tyrant. Uh, he was a ruthless tyrant. So then what does it mean? Before the Lord, he was a ruthless tyrant. What that means is that even the Lord says Nimrod is a ruthless tyrant. And so people could say this, watch out for Nimrod. It kind of goes back to when we read about the one Lamech. Do you remember him? And he talks to his wives. God's vengeance is sevenfold. Mine is 70 times sevenfold. And, and we have the same type of person here. Nimrod is a ruthless tyrant. Even God says so. Watch out. Watch out. Now, is that a kind of king that you would love to live under? So it's no surprise that when we read that, ne uh, that Nimrod comes about, uh, that Babel comes through Nimrod, Nineveh comes through, civilizations that were magnificently powerful and ruthless. Kingdoms that elevated human strength and power, civilizations that acted just like Cain. Civilizations that would say, am I my brother's keeper? And they'll murder not thinking about God, not thinking about others. That's Nimrod and his descendancy. That's living in the chaos of the fall. But again, 
we can relate to this as well in the world in which we live. Nations fighting against nations, people being killed and slaughtered and persecuted. And as a result, again, people are hurt. This is all rebellion against the Lord. Yet, yet, God's judgment over Nimrod is that he's a ruthless tyrant. But that does not mean that Nimrod wins, right? Nimrod is in this line of Ham where there's no order. It's the shifting sand. It's, it's chaos. And even though the Israelites could say that they wander while the sons of Ham have kingdoms that have enslaved them and fought against them, the Israelites can trust that the Lord is over them all underneath all of this genealogy. There's no wholeness. Again, the same is true for us today. Do we recognize the whole world's going to be judged someday by God? Do you believe that? I mean, that's what God says. Jesus is going to judge the nations. And I actually take great comfort in words like this hymn from Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, can you say this next line with me? His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Do you know this God? Have you been introduced to this God? Do you love and trust him? The Lord who is sovereign over the nations is sovereign over the apparent chaos, and in the midst of this apparent chaos, he weaves his redemptive plan. In chapter 9, just to read of the blessing, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. This word for servant can also be slave. Now, in this point, I said, weaves his redemptive plan. And I'm using that word not because that word shows up here in chapter 10. But I, but I want to communicate that, that in this genealogy that's communicating a world where it might look like everything is just moving along and, and God is just allowing things to continue to go and maybe it seems as though God doesn't care. But in the midst of all of this, God is at work. We can't see necessarily his hand, but we know he's there and we know he's going to fulfill his promises. So where do we see that God is at work? Well, the genealogy ends somewhat like the genealogy of chapter five, where we read of a different Lamech whose son is Noah. He makes a comment about Noah and then you just say something, something's up with that guy. Something's going to happen. And that's what we get here as well. In chapter 10, we get to a guy named Eber. And he has two sons. By the, by the way, the word Eber in Hebrew is related to the word Hebrew, from which we get the word Hebrew, okay? 
the Hebrews are named after Eber. Eber has two sons. One is Joktan, the other is Peleg. Peleg is the only other person mentioned as something being said about him other than Nimrod in this genealogy. So we have an offspring of cursed Ham and an offspring of blessed Shem. See this? Now what's fascinating to me, actually, is that more is said of Nimrod than Peleg here. And the reason why that's fascinating is because, actually, when we get to the end of this, we should have this anticipation. But God's going to fulfill his promises, right? And, and I don't know about you, but if, if I was in a cave and it was absolutely dark in there, it, and I didn't know how to get out, if I saw this much light, I would have hope, wouldn't you? I got to go that direction. There's something there. That's what I view this genealogy to be like. Oh, there's the hopelessness, Nimrod, and he has, he's so powerful and he's wicked and ruthless. And then you have this like little comment about Peleg. Wait a second. There's hope here. There's something to be encouraged by here. And in verse 25, to Eber were born two sons, the name of the one Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Why even make that comment? Now we're told in Peleg's day the earth is divided. Peleg's name also means division. And the idea of division is not so much that everybody was against each other. Instead, it's communicating more of like what the Apostle Paul wrote in Acts 17. Speaking of God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has divided Shem, Ham, Japheth. Peleg comes from Shem, who is blessed. Chaos seems to reign, but God's in control of all. God has ordered all the nations in a specific way there is the seed of the serpent, but there is also the seed of the woman. And what was the promise from the seed of the woman? That that seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. So God has ordered all people groups in different places. He's divided them up over the earth. Why? Why has he done that? The scriptures actually tell us elsewhere. Actually, the Apostle Paul goes on and actually communicates in the very next verse. This is the reason that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God is over all. What a comfort this should be to the Israelites to know that God is even over Nimrod-like nations. And what a comfort that should be to all of us. And also, what urgency people ought to feel to respond to the Lord in his kindnesses too. God has done this so that people would turn to him and trust him because there is a God who is over all. And he has made himself known. If you feel and know the chaos of this world and you feel and know the chaos even in your own heart, turn to God. He's not far. He's right here. What we discover as we continue to study is that through Peleg comes Abraham. And God promises that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Ultimately, the promise to Abraham culminates in Jesus 
And do you know what happens after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven? There's a day that people call Pentecost. We actually read it earlier. Aaron read it earlier from Acts 2. And on that day, people from various languages were in Jerusalem. All these people who were divided up. The Spirit comes and is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, they can understand each other. And it's not just that they understand each other. They they're hearing a declaration of the goodness of God and his message of good news through Jesus. And many people ended up turning from their sins, trusting in Jesus. They were introduced to the Lord and they unified together because of Jesus Christ and they were made a part of his new kingdom this new creation, and that small group of Christians in Jerusalem grew in one day to 3,000 people, and they have been growing and expanding ever since. We, here today, are a result of what took place then 2,000 years ago. We can resonate with this Genesis 10 genealogy. Even though the world is broken, God is sovereign over all. Even though it seems like the world might win, God is sovereign over it all. He sent Jesus to take the punishment our sins deserved. And on the cross, it might have seemed like the world won. It might have seemed like the serpent won. But Jesus was the seed of the woman, and he conquered sin and rose from the dead and conquered death so that people from every tribe, nation, language, clan, tongue could believe on him and be made a part of God's family, that these people could turn from their sins and experience forgiveness and be introduced to the Lord and to know the Lord forever and ever. And then the Bible goes on into Revelation and then declares someday Jesus is coming back again and all who trust in Jesus will be together with him from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And then there will be peace forever and ever. So the question for you, are you a son of Ham? Or are you a child of faith in King Jesus? Are you a child of faith? And even if you say, yes, I've trusted in Jesus. Okay, what does that look like in your life? Are you still trying to gain control or are you trusting. God's in control. He has me here, and I trust his goodness, even if it feels like I'm wandering, even if it feels like I'm a sojourner and a stranger and an alien, which the Bible says we are. Even though that might feel the case, he's worthy to be trusted. When you hear that the Lord, who is sovereign over the nation, weaves his redemptive plan within the apparent chaos of the world, do you simply find that to be an interesting fact? Or does this comfort and compel your heart to commune with the Lord himself? Because you've been reintroduced to the Lord again today in chapter 10. Will you continue to receive his grace or continue to turn? And if you're hesitating to trust, why? Why? And if you're trusting him, rejoice. 
Whatever the Spirit is showing you, respond to God. Musicians are going to come up. We're going to sing a concluding song, and I'm simply going to give you time in, in quiet to respond to the Lord and what he might be showing you. And then in a few moments, Colby will lead us in a song. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.